Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from May 23rd by Pastor Randy titled, Teach Us to Pray, Part 3. So there's a flight attendant that was getting everybody ready on board for the flight. And as she's doing that, there's a guy in first class that immediately starts making inappropriate remarks to her. And she did nothing to encourage it at all. And so even as the flight gets going and gets started, he continues with his over-the-line inappropriate remarks. And what makes matters worse is there's a guy in the back of the plane who's doing the exact same thing through the whole flight. And then as soon as they start their descent, the guy in first class, he totally crosses the line. He grabs her hand, puts inside her hand a key and a little note with an address on it and says, be there at nine and gives her a little wink. But she takes the key and a note, goes to the back of the plane, hands it to the guy in back of the plane and says, be there at nine, don't be late. <laughs> the moral of the story is this. Wrong things happen when we ask for the wrong things. And so many times in prayer, we ask for the wrong things. The disciples found that to be their case because they had listened to Jesus pray and they came to the conclusion, we must be doing it wrong. If Jesus is doing it right, we must be doing it wrong. And so what they did is they, they, they came together and they elected a spokesman who goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Now, I bet none of you have ever asked anybody to teach you how to pray. And if someone came up to you after you prayed and said, you're not doing it right, you would have got offended, highly offended. So, what Jesus begins with when they ask him to teach him how to pray, he begins telling them what they're doing wrong, some things they need to unlearn first. And so it's my hope as we continue with this series, that we can all be humble enough to say, maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe we're asking for the wrong things in this. And what we find, what Jesus, what would he say to us? If, if we'd asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, what would he say to us? What are some wrong things that we're doing? James says, in chapter 4, he says, the reason that you're not getting your prayers answered is because you're asking to consume it upon your own self, because of your own lust. I think one of the things that Jesus would tell us is that you think prayer is just some way to fill your desires, your needs, your wants, your wishes. Every poll that they take, when they ask what's a purpose in life or number one purpose in life, however they want to, to, to put that, Every poll they take about the purpose in life, there's always one answer at the very top for every poll concerning a purpose in life. That number one answer is to be happy so that I can be happy. Now, rather than confront that way of thinking, as a church, we baptize that way of thinking. And we said, let me tell you the Christian way to be happy. Can anybody say, your best life now by Joel Osteen? How can you be happy? And so we teach people to pray so they can ultimately be happy. Have you ever heard the phrase, name it and claim it? 
So what we will say is that God has written this big blank check to you. He's signing at the bottom. You can fill it in with whatever you want to do. However you want to fill it in, you can do that. Because the way we use prayer, the ultimate goal we think prayer, we hope prayer is all about, is to make us happy, to get our needs, our wishes, our wants. But what if prayer is not about trying to bend God's will to meet your needs, but what if prayer is about God bending our will so that we want what he wants? Whenever I go to the restaurant and the waiter comes to take my order, I never told the waiter, look, you just order for me whatever you want to order. Whatever you bring, I'll just eat it. I've never said that. I may have said, tell me what three of your most popular dishes are, and I'll choose one of them. But I still reserve veto power. Because I'm not about to let people tell me what I want. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, when, when, whenever you get to pray, you ought to be thinking about it. You ought to be praying about it. You ought to be focused on what God wants for you in your life. So here we are. Back to our verse. We're going through the Lord's Prayer in this series. And we started looking at this last week. We're going to finish up with this part of it this week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is teaching us to pray. And he said, this is how you should pray. Now, prayer, what he is saying is that prayer is not a way to get our will done in heaven, but a way to get God's will done on earth. And this is, kind of stands in, in contrast to prayer is there to make me happy. God, I've got this request. I've made it clear. This is what I need you to do in my life. How come you're not cooperating? Well, what if prayer is not meant to advance our kingdom? What if your kingdom come implies there's more than one kingdom and you have to make a choice? Because here's the reality. There's a lot of kingdoms vying for your allegiance. And you have to choose. You have to make a choice. There's a lot of kingdoms that want your allegiance, that, that, that want it. You have to choose one. See, everywhere that Jesus went, he always started off saying the same thing. We read about it in the very first chapter of Mark. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus was always saying. The kingdom of God is here. It's among you. You want to be a part of the kingdom of God? You have to repent. Step one. And you have to want the reign of God in your life. That's the big one. We can partner with God on having his kingdom come. But in order to do that, he has to first of all reign in our hearts. See, you can't pray your kingdom come if you practice selective obedience. You cannot pray your kingdom come if you say, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to, whenever I want to. You can't practice your kingdom come if you're planning on getting drunk at the party tonight. You can't, you can't say your kingdom come if, if you're going to say, God, it's my money, not your money. I'll just give you the leftovers. 
You can't say your kingdom come if your entertainment choices and your language choices are things that you wouldn't want anybody in the church to know about. So here's the thing. Your kingdom come is a prayer to surrender our will, not impose it. But we don't pray to surrender, do we? We pray for forgiveness and we pray to be rescued because we didn't surrender. Here's what I want you to realize. If you don't get this, the rest of Jesus' teaching won't hit home with you at all. The rest of his teaching on prayer will just go right over your head. Because everything else he's going to say assumes surrender. Assumes you're wanting his kingdom come and, your, and his will to be done in your life. That you want him to reign in you. So when we say your kingdom come, when we're praying and we're saying your kingdom come, that means we understand prayer is not about God. Here's my list. But you're enlisting. What I mean by that is your kingdom come is a declaration of war. Because when you're praying for God's kingdom to come, you're praying for Satan's kingdom to be opposed, to leave. So it's a declaration of war. General Abrams, during World War II, he found himself and his men surrounded by Nazis. So he got his leaders together, and in his usual way of optimism, he said, for the first time in this campaign, we can attack the enemy from any direction. See, that goes for us too. Because Satan wants to come to us from all directions, from everywhere. We need to understand that every part of the Lord's prayer is about pushing back on Satan's kingdom. See, because, because Satan doesn't want you to have your daily bread. He wants there to be poverty. He wants there to be greed. He wants there to be hoarding. Satan doesn't want you to live in forgiveness. He wants you to live in guilt and shame and trying to, to hide your sins so nobody else knows. Satan doesn't want you forgiving other people. He wants you to have anger and bitterness well up in your life. That's the way his kingdom advances. So every part of this prayer is about pushing back on Satan. Because when God's kingdom has come, his kingdom has to go. So here's what I want you to realize. Satan is fine with our self-centered prayers because he doesn't want the world to witness the reign of God. We can pray these little self-centered prayers all day long. Satan's fine with that. As long as you're trying to impose your will upon God, he's good with that. He's good about you praying about your happiness, your needs, your wishes. He's, he's great with that. As long as, as you're not trying to have God's kingdom reign in your heart, he's okay. So, there's a prayer we have recorded. It's the, as far as I think, it's pretty much the first prayer after the resurrection. And this prayer takes place about six weeks after the resurrection. Somewhere roughly in that timeline. Uh, we, we'll, just, we'll just say two months. 
That'll give somewhere in the area of two months. Not two years, not 20 years, not 200 years. Two months after the resurrection. Let me give you just a little bit of background before we look at this prayer. Peter preached a sermon at Pentecost. 3,000 are saved. Next day, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. And they come across this lame guy and they heal him. So now there's a great commotion going on. A lot of people are gathering around. A lot of people are, you know, this, this news is, is spreading real quick. And a lot of people are gathering around. So Peter and John, they take the opportunity to talk about the resurrection. This gets back to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders, and they're not too excited about this. So they have Peter and John arrested. Now, these are the same group of people that had Jesus arrested and crucified. Now they've arrested Peter and John, probably put them in the same prison that Jesus was in, not looking good. They probably think their life is over. And so next day, they bring them out, and they say, by whose authority did you heal this guy? And what they're implying is, Rome, we have influence with them. They're sort of on our side. All we have to do is go to Pilate and tell him we need two more executions and we're done with this mess, and that's it. You're gone. What do Peter and John do? They don't back down an inch. In fact, they, they go and they say, Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised him from the dead. And then they say something even more offensive than that in Acts 4.12. There is salvation no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Sounds kind of narrow, doesn't it? Nobody else? Jesus? How can they say something like that statement? How can they be so bold when just a, a few weeks earlier they're running away? Because when you have breakfast with a guy on a beach who was dead two days earlier... Your kingdom, you're not concerned about anymore. You're concerned about his kingdom. Totally changes your perspective. So now, the religious leaders, they're certainly finding themselves in trouble. What do we do? Because not only have they been backed down sort of by, by Peter and John, they realize that they would love, well, they would love to, to either put them in prison, beat them, have them killed, whatever. But now there's a crowd outside that's not exactly on their side. And if they do anything to Peter and John, they know there's going to be a riot. So they just let them go. Now, what do you think Peter and John did next? Got a couple of donkeys, got out of town, go, that was close. We almost missed it and just disappeared for the rest of their lives. No, because again, when you have breakfast on a beach with a guy who was dead a couple of days earlier, it's not about you anymore. Now you understand it's about his kingdom and his reign. So they go back to the rest of their friends, rest of their disciples. And here's what we read. After they were released, they went to their own people, reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you're the one who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, everything in them. So now we have their prayer, their first recorded prayer. And what is it? God, you are at large and you're in charge. You're over everything. Now, do you think God needed to hear this? Do you think God went, oh, I almost forgot. Yeah, I'm in charge. Thanks for reminding me. No, they need to remind themselves. 
Now, how do we begin the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. God, you're at large. You're in charge. We went over that last week. And so, so, so this, is, this is what they're doing. How embarrassing does that make our little petty prayers look? God, help me find a parking place. Help me find my key. And that's the biggest thing we pray for all day long. See, there was, there was once a version of Christianity that inspired heroic prayers. There is once a version of Christianity that inspired people to pray beyond their own little world, beyond just what they could see. There is once a, a version of Christianity that, that prayed for God's kingdom to come and reign in them, to come and reign on this earth. There is once a version of Christianity that prayed that God would just rend the heavens and come down as righteous would flood this place. Different. A little different. So here's what they say next. You said to the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? He's quoting Old Testament scripture now. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assemble together against your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed to do whatever was in your hand and you and your will had predestined to take place. God, we realize none of this took you by surprise. You had planned all this, so we're not worried, but we have this one request. They're about to give a request. And what's their request? God help our portfolios to grow and our waistlines to shrink. Help this pimple to go away so I can have a date on Saturday night. What's their request? Here's their request. And now, Lord, consider their threats. That's their request. Consider their threats. In other words, just keep an eye on them. Let's put this in perspective. What that prayer that we did, the part of the prayer we just read beforehand, they're saying, God, all this you had planned out from the beginning. You were in control the whole time. We saw Jesus crucified. We looked at this, 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 this. We thought everything was completely out of control. But now, now after this resurrection, we realize that this, 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 this happened, and you were in control the whole time. It was according to your plan. So, God, we don't know what your plan is now concerning us. You may want us to suffer. But we know it's going to be all according to your plan. We're not afraid of that. Because it's about your kingdom now, not ours. So we don't know what you have planned. So God, just keep an eye on them. Just watch them. That's all. Not praying that we're safe. Not, we're just, just watch them. Just keep an eye on them. And then it says this, And grant your servants may speak your word with all boldness. I read that and I'm thinking, isn't boldness what got you in trouble to begin with? Aren't you already bold? Now, if I'd have been consulting them, I said, just play it cool for a little while. Let things die down. You don't want to get yourself in trouble. 
After all, you got this trip to Hawaii planned, right? You want to be able to enjoy that. So don't, don't jeopardize that. Don't get yourself in trouble. Just calm down. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed and asked for boldness? If not, why not? Didn't think about it? Scary? Here's what we want to see. Boldness is an other-centered prayer. Because when you ask for boldness, it's not for you. It's so you can share the gospel with other people. It's because you have somebody else in mind. It's a lot different than our prayers. A lot different than, dear Lord, please help me make an A on this test. Thank you for the day. Please help my wife to find her car keys so I don't have to go home and find her car keys in her purse for her. Lord, please. Yeah, I prayed that a lot over the years. If only our version of Christianity was worth living for and dying for, and that was reflected in our prayers. So let's go back. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus teaching us a prayer that has no possibility of being answered? Is this a pointless prayer? That his kingdom come, his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? See, this is, this is not just a request. This is in a sense of prophecy. That what's going to happen also will happen. John saw this. This is what John said in, in his, his revelation. He said, these will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. In other words, there's going to be a time when his kingdom come, his will be done, and we will be a part of that. But see, our prayers don't reflect this, do they? Because we're concerned about our own kingdoms. We are to pray for not only what ought to happen, but for what one day will happen. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But the problem is, we can't do this. We'll never pray that way if our eyes are not open to his majesty and his glory and to who he is. We'll never pray like that. So I've got a question for you. How many of you never learned to swim? Wow. Oh, got some others. Okay, you're not alone. And there's some more that they just don't want to raise their hand. All right. So the question is, I'm, I'm, this is blowing me away. Jeremy doesn't know how to swim. Okay. All right. So why doesn't that happen? Usually it's because of, it's a lack of surrender, lack of a trust of, of another adult, our parents, a swim instructor, older brother and sister. We, we hang on to the side. I'm not letting go of this no matter what. We want to hang on to that no matter what. But when we do learn to swim, it opens up a whole other world for us we never thought possible in a way. We never dreamed about. You know, you, not only do you get to swim, you get the raft, you get the canoe, you get the scuba dive, you get the water ski. I mean, all these things. Not to mention not live in fear of water, right? So, here's the analogy. 
when you recognize your father, who he is, and embrace his will, his will, his kingdom in your life, you're open up to another world you would never experience otherwise. We think if we submit ourselves to him and surrender to him, it's going to mess up our life. No, no, no. That's what you were created for. That's what we're made for. That's when your life really begins. Up to that point, there's not a whole lot going on. But see, we often skip that part of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because we want it to be about our kingdom, don't we? In us. This is not on the screen. But let me read you this. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there we have our kingdom again. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we... Didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Ooh. That tells me you can do a lot of good things in the Christian world. But if you're not concerned about his kingdom and his reign in your life, doing his will... You're going to have a hard time calling yourself a Christian. And later on, his next words after this, he says, therefore. And then he starts talking about the wise and the foolish. We hit on that in our Sunday school time, our Bible study this morning. About being a fool. Being called Foolish. And it was in the context of you got this whole world right before you, this whole spiritual world exploding, exploding right before your eyes, and you can't see it? How foolish. You got God's kingdom has come. It's right before us. It's right here. It's right now. He wants to do his will in your world, in your life, and you can't see that? You'd rather just have your own little way, your own little needs, your own little wants, your own little wishes. You don't want to surrender to him. You don't want him to reign in your life. You fool. Don't think you're a Christian if that's the case. I know that's harsh. But it's true. First John says, hey, no obedience, no Christian. Pretty black and white guy. If you have trouble with this part of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life, in my world, reign in me, I surrender to you. If you have trouble with that, I'm not sure there's any point in you going on. Trying to fool yourself into thinking you're a Christian, you're okay with God. 
And I would imagine this covers more of us in our prayers than, than we'd like to admit. So Jesus prayed, Father, your will be done, not mine, in the garden, didn't he? And because of that, we can come into his presence. Because of that, we can be a part of his kingdom. And so the invitation for you right now is, do you want to come and be a part of his kingdom? Are you ready to let his kingdom come, his will be done in your life? Do you want to be a part of his kingdom? Jesus said, we read it earlier, repent and come and be a part of my kingdom and what it's all about. So you come by, by changing your mind, change your way, say, God, I want to come and surrender to you. And maybe that's, for some of you, that's a first-time thing that you need to do. And for some of you, you sort of kind of lost your way as a Christian. You're, you're sort of backslidden. It's funny because in things like this, backslidden Christians and non-Christians sort of look the same. And they pretty much have to do the same thing to get back to where they are. Just come back and surrender to him. And say, God, it's no longer about my kingdom. It's about yours. Every day, Father, I'm going to come before you, acknowledge who you are. You're at large. You're in charge. Father, what's your will? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do in my life? What do you want me to think about? And you will find <laughs> that that's not something scary. You will find that will lead to the life you've always wanted. Because that's what we were created to do was to allow his glory to dwell in us. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God who is in you? That's what he wants. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.